Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 23. I'm your host, Eric Swing, and with me this time is Gabe Durham, editor and publisher of Boss Fight Books. Hey, Eric. To get right into it, why don't you uh, describe to the listeners what exactly Boss Fight Books is? Sure. So, Boss Fight Books is a multi-author book series uh, about video games. Uh, specifically, each book is about a single video game, um, and each author takes a different approach based on the game itself and uh, where their interest in the game lies. So take a you know historical approach, critical, personal, and often um, kind of a mix of those things. And uh, yeah, we wrapped our first season up with Super Mario Bros. 3 by John Irwin, and we just kick-started our second season of books. Uh, two. Sorry? Super Mario Brothers 2. Oh, did I say three? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just that's especially insulting because I just subbed out the like <laughs> the book that we chose to write about for the for the most popular Mario game. It's like more attractive younger brother. So sorry, Mario too. Where did the initial idea of boss fight books come from? I remember you mentioning thirty three and a third. Yeah, I mean that was a huge inspiration. And honestly, like initially the idea was just kind of that little thought experiment that I had one day, which is what would it be like if there was a 33 and a third style series, but for video games. And it feels rare to me to have an idea like that and then to go online and find that it doesn't already exist. Usually I just find that, oh, well, surely, you know, I didn't know about it, but there it is. And, um, but this time, yeah, no, it really wasn't, wasn't there. The closest thing that I found was I believe it's called Ludologica, which is uh, an Italian series um, about games that does... Oh, it's hard to tell because I don't speak Italian, but it, does, it seems to do a kind of similar thing. And so, so I began with that, and as I started kind of looking into it, I liked the idea more and more as kind of this opportunity to dig... So for writers to kind of dig into a topic that a lot of people are interested in, and as it is really exciting, like an art form that's happening right now, and that doesn't have that same kind of like long form book criticism attached to it. And then for the game world, I thought it would be really cool and interesting to tap people who are both inside of it and out of it and kind of see what these different people from either games journalism or game development or just writing, you know, people who are themselves writers who don't normally write about games and see what they bring to it. Before we go more specifically into boss fight books, we'll what was your like connection with 33? Have you read the 33 and a third books yourself? Um, yeah, I've read about uh, six of them. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a series that uh, I have a lot of respect for. And I had a lot of like ideas for like things that I would do differently, too. You know, some of those have let in fiction that are kind of like nominally about an album. And but then they kind of go off and do this different thing. I'm not as interested in that for this series because I think it's might be more cohesive and people might kind of get more of a sense of what they're getting into if we keep it all nonfiction. And then also uh, some of those books, I think particularly some of the early ones, it seems like they don't do this as much, but it almost felt like as dry as reading a PhD thesis that somebody had just kind of like put a cover onto. So I was aware of, you know, and I'm definitely interested in being, you know, critical and really, really digging into the games in a substantive way, but I never wanted to read dry. You know, I don't want it to be academic in the worst way, which is, to me, means unreadable and kind of obtuse. So from the idea, of course, you had to 
go to Kickstarter to get the whole thing running. You had a partner at the very beginning, correct? Uh, yeah, so Ken Bauman, who was my friend from L.A., still is my friend but no longer lives in L.A., he uh, was one of the first people who I really got to talk to about this idea, kind of this what if. And he was really excited about the idea, and we had a long conversation about it. And then he, like, he texted me just a few hours later in the day. It was like, you know, I've been thinking about it, and I, and I really think you got to do it. And so the, the agreement that we landed on really early on was, okay, I'll, I'll do this book series if you'll write one of them for me. So he actually was like the first author that I contracted for the series. And since he's got a talent for it, became the series book designer as well. So he is still on board in that way and has designed all the season two covers as well. And the Kickstarter? He, what he, well, uh, I mean, he's involved in the Kickstarter. Uh, well, but, you, but not, yeah, not as, uh, oh, how did it go? Yeah, the season one Kickstarter. Uh, what's the story there? Uh, yeah, it, it went great. Um, <laughs> it was, it was, <laughs> it was uh, I mean, that, that really did begin the book series for us in a lot of ways. We were lucky in that we got some good attention early on, some of the fans of those games kind of discovered us in that time. And, and, and some of the gaming press got on board too, because again, because it was a new thing, kind of a curiosity. So we were, uh, we were able to do that. And also uh, we were able to, like, first we got a, a mention of Kotaku, but then we also got to publish a really early excerpt of Ken's Earthbound book there during that first campaign. And that, that got, that got some people excited as well. So, so yeah, really that was, you know, we set a goal, in that first campaign for $5,000 and then wound up hitting 45000 by the end of it, which was like, you know, in, in addition to, you know, having the funds to actually make it possible, it was a really cool indicator that, yeah, this is like an idea that has legs and people, people are into it and will actually read these books. So that was like very sustaining for me in the next year because, you know, like you do a Kickstarter and then you have to spend all this time fulfilling it on it. So how did season one, the season one book specifically, come together? How did you choose the games and the authors? So in season one, I didn't seek out any particular games. For me, it was all about working with the right authors. So, and that came together. So first, you know, so Ken was was the first one. Actually, I knew Michael Kimball, uh, our Galaga author through the writer world and another um, publisher friend who I was telling about the idea, he said, well, I know Michael Kimball is looking for a new book project and he's obsessed with Galaga. So that like began that conversation. And he, you know, he's a well-established novelist. So that was kind of a cool chance to get to work with someone who's, you know, really been writing books for a long time. But there from like working with Ken and Michael, I really wanted to get some people who, you know, work in games or write about games. Um, so John Irwin, I discovered through Kill Screen. That was like right around the time when the very first story bundle, video game bundle, came out, and there were a couple of issues in Kill, of Kill Screen in that. And I was really impressed with it and really excited to see. I felt like there was a lot of overlap in terms of like their vision and what I was just you know really early on in the road of uh, starting to do. And so I contacted him through that, and then both Darius and Anna. It was through. You know, they're, they're both developers. Um, Anna is more explicitly a game developer. Darius used to, and now he's more into, he does web development. He makes Twitter bots. Uh, he makes interesting things online. So for her, it was really, uh, it was really her first book, uh, Rise of the Video Game Zinesters, that got me really interested because she had, like, such a fascinating take on 
how games could be or how, how game making is for everybody. Um, and I love that's really like the theme of that book. And she really like kind of made that real for me as I was reading it. So I was just really curious about like what she might do with a book about an entire game. So when I contacted her about it, she immediately said ZZT. And it sort of became, I really think that like Zinesters and ZZT are this nice kind of pair now because they're, they both are kind of getting at a similar thing from, from really different angles. And then Darius, the, the thing that uh, first drew me to him was this essay that he wrote called Fuck Video Games, which was all about how you do not need to pick one mode of like artistic expression and then just do it no matter what. Like if, there, if a video game serves your idea for something that you want to explore, then uh, great, then make a video game. But if it doesn't, you know, if, I, if a novel would be better, or if a painting would be better, or if a you know a Twitter bot would be better, then do that instead. So that was that was really <laughs> that was really interesting to me too. So anyway, so that's 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 a long answer, but that's that's that crew that that I assembled and um, reached out to um, in the. Did you mention um, uh, Michael P. Williams? No, I didn't, and the reason I didn't is because he didn't come on board until after that campaign. So both of our Kickstarter campaigns. One thing that we've done to make it like fun and interesting for us and backers and and also like kind of more democratic in a way that appeals to me is to offer up one spot in the season to letting everybody vote on what game they want to read a book about. And so we used like the Kickstarter comment section as a place primarily for voting. So everybody would get on there and nominate what they want. And then I got it down to a list of finalists and then they would vote again from there. And so the first one that was voted on was Chrono Trigger. And then this uh, second season, you know, I mean, this is really just a couple weeks ago when the campaign ended and we found out it was Shadow of the Colossus, which was pretty surprising to me, actually. Like I uh, Final Fantasy VI got so much steam in the early going and then really like petered out in the finalist round. But Shadow of the Colossus was kind of this like sleeper. And then in, in the end, really like surged ahead. So anyway. And, and that's and that's a book that I still don't have the writer for because this is also recent. So pitches are open right now to writers to basically like pitch me their idea for what they want to write, for what they would do with the book about Shadow of a Colossus, and you know with the hope that maybe they would uh, even like write a little uh, sample section of the book, basically just enough to like give me an idea of what they would do with it. And then after I've read all those and evaluate those, then I'll make the call on who writes it. But that's exactly what I did for Chrono Trigger. So. Mike Williams was one of our backers and he uh, in that first campaign and he just really kind of got this vision for what a book about Chrono Trigger could could be and uh, the way he tells it like he just like wrote feverishly for a full day and like watch as he he watched a playthrough of the, the game on YouTube while making so many notes and then like put together a pitch and it was just really phenomenal so, and since then, he's been involved uh, with the press in, in a number of ways, just because, um, so he's a research librarian, and so we've gotten to, uh, he, he's been, like, really generous in kind of helping some of us work on work on our books and, like, find us obscure sources and, um, and that kind of thing, and also uh, do, some, do some edits and copy edits for us. So um, he's, he's a, great, a great find, but, yeah, all that happened after the initial campaign and the months that followed that. In the actual process of writing these books, how uh, how does that work? The author has a transcript, and then 
gives it to you to uh, to work hash out with him? Is there more specifically like meetings on how you want to the direction of each specific project to go? Sure. Well, it it really goes differently each time, and so different authors. I mean, I I really want this to be their books. You know, their their name is on the book, and I want their vision to be the one that shines through. I think I'm good at identifying what that vision is and really like pushing the book toward that. But so, you know, some authors will wait until they've got a really good complete draft and show me that. Others, you know, will just send me the, you know first draft for the book in chunks and we'll kind of hash it out and. You know, and, and some of them have a more kind of complete sense right at the outset of what they want to do, whereas some of them are kind of exploring more in the early going. And so kind of sending me stuff kind of with the question of like, what about this? Like what? You know, and so I'll kind of be able to, to give them feedback about that. But, yeah, generally the, that, that process is, you know, they'll send, they'll send me a draft or part of a draft and I'll make a ton of notes and send it back to them. And in the early going, it's way more about the content and about the kind of big picture changes and what would make for the best and most exciting book. And, and then from there, you know, the, the notes get, get to be about smaller and smaller kind of line level things um, until we're kind of hashing out individual words and sentences and, um, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's, um, but it's a really involved process. I think, I think a few of the authors have been uh, surprised to see just how much uh, I have to say. Again, not because I want to take over, and and I and I really I don't feel that I do, but I really you know I really want these books to be as good as they can. So yeah, I uh, I get hands on. I have a lot of fun. <laughs> and what are like the reactions from the authors, and and how you do you get pushback on some of the edits, or do you go and do, does like a third direction become apparent? Oh yeah, sometimes. I mean. I'll say that, like, in terms of their temperament, everybody has been fantastic. They're really, like, I'm, you know, I'm sure if I do this for long enough, then eventually I'll get somebody who I really, like, offend with some kind of note and get, uh, like, emotional pushback. But so far, uh, all the pushback has just been in terms of, you know, vision and really, like, both of us wanting to get the, the best book and, you know, kind of trying to figure out how to do that. So, yes, definitely, like, that third thing comes through. Or, you know, sometimes I'll lose a fight for, for the, the way I want a sentence to go or something, and I think that's probably good, too. And how do you think season one overall just came out? Quality of the work or the styles of the work or even just the, the plurality of the work, yeah. the variety? Yeah, well I'm, well, I'm glad you said variety. I mean, I that's one of the things I'm the proudest of is I think that, like, the variety of the season really speaks for itself the way that these authors are doing really, really different things um, with the books and the fact that their voices are really different from one another. I mean, that was kind of one of the ideals that I came in with kind of most strongly wanting to see. And so far it's happened, you know, I think, and, th and that's something that I want to continue to pr protect and preserve as the series goes on. You know, I've had, you know, we've had like an open reading period and occasionally I'll have somebody kind of like reference one of our books. Like I'd like to do an earthbound type thing where I, you know, and I don't, I don't want that. I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't want them to think that, that that excites me because, you know, I've already read Earthbound uh, and I, and I, and I like it and I think it's a successful book, but I, but I want to keep pushing the series in different directions. So I'm really excited for the way, like, you know, whereas like on one side, uh, like Darius Kazemi's book is very historical and methodical approach to Jagged Alliance 2 and how satisfying it can be to just have someone who did a lot of interviews and, and has, has a take really just um, step-by-step step lay out 
how a game gets made and why and why a game like that doesn't get made anymore. And then, you know, on the, on the other end of the spectrum, some of these more personal books like, like Galaga, which has so much personal material in it, um, and it's so chopped up into these uh, tiny chapter sections. Yeah, so, so I'm very proud of that. And then... And it, also going the, forward, it means, like, look at all the, the, like, the different directions you can go, and it doesn't automatically mentally lock a prospective author into one mode of thinking. This is what Boss Fight Books is. Yeah, oh, I, I really hope so. And I, and I hope that, like, for readers, too, that it kind of uh, encourages just, like, thinking about uh, thinking about games and thinking about, like, focusing on an artistic topic for a long time, like, how how differently that could come out and, and still be satisfying. So if we're sort of, like, building an elasticity in our readership, like, that'd be really exciting to me to think that, that like, somebody would be excited to come to our books and know that they don't exactly know what they're in for and be okay with that. <laughs> and that's like, that sounds really good to me. And, and I think like that, that's also like one of the reasons that I was really excited to reach out to Derek Yu this time, because when I kind of had this idea of like, what if I got a game developer to write about how he made his own game or, or, or she, how they made their own game, like what would that be like? And, you know, since I love Spelunky, uh, that was, Derek was the first person I tried. So it was kind of another way of thinking, like, well, what's what's another angle? And in this case, I came to him, but mostly I'm just really glad that it's happening, you know, because that's uh, I think that's going to be really different from any of the books so far. Now you answer, you kind of answered this question already, but like in going forward, are there other certain authors you have your eye on for potential season three inclusions or down, even further down the road? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely like a, a number of authors who have, you know captured my attention and you know yeah who I would be interested in working with and you know and, and to be honest there there are some authors who I have already reached out to and gotten a no or not right now or you know that kind of thing but with kind of that like caveat of but you know maybe maybe down the line check in with me so you know I think as the series continues and as I just kind of continue to be more aware of both, you know, people in the video game world and just, you know, writers who I think have a really interesting take on whatever topic they pursue. I mean, the list of people who I think would probably do a great job just kind of gets longer and longer. And then also, you know, the, the fa- I, I really like the fact, though, that as it continues, I also get to kind of rely on people who I didn't know about who just kind of show up and introduce themselves to me. And I mean, particularly like in this open reading period, just got so many more very good ones than bad ones, honestly. Like, it would have made things easier for me if there were just a lot more clear no's. But, you know, for uh, for whatever reason, I, I mean, I think really, like, what most appeals to people is not, like, anything about us uh, as a press. Since we're still really young, it's, it's, I think for writers, it's like, it's the prompt, you know? It's like, what would I do with a book about a game? And to, like, a certain kind of mind, it just, like, sends you off into uh like possibilities land so that's it uh that's a that's a bit of a tangent but given the success of season one what did you keep in mind for who to look out to who to reach out to for season two like for who for who uh like the the... well you said you did it through writers and not like the games right smell so yeah once again it was um like i reached out to ashley and anthony birch uh, they that that book uh, so Metal Gear Solid that came together a lot sooner than most of the other season two books. I think when I started talking to them, it might have been even while the season one Kickstarter was still happening. 
and I was, you know, I was impressed with Hey Ash, which plan? I eventually came to be impressed with Borderlands 2, although I hadn't played it yet. And that it just seemed like a really, that seemed like a really cool, uh, like kind of another new take. I initially was emailing with Ashley and was kind of like, well, you know, would you be interested in working on something with your brother or by yourself? Or like, what do you kind of, what do you see? And, and her idea was to kind of do, to do this uh, book with Anthony that kind of keeps swinging back and forth between the two of them and really like giving over that author voice from one to the other. And uh, in these early drafts, there's, there's like already like a really fun volley that happens. And even like this very like sibling picking on each other uh, that like they will just like parenthetically like make a little jab. So that came together. And Matt Bell is a writer who I've known his work for a while and known him personally for almost as long, just kind of from writer land. And uh, he's, uh, he's definitely like a guy who was a, I was really interested to work with. And he came to me with a number of ideas initially, but most of them had some were, were, had something to do with the D and D world, uh, whether it was like Planescape Torment or, so, or or like Baldur's Gate One. But eventually, like you know, we had these conversations, and he kind of settled on Baldur's Gate Two as the one that he was most excited to explore. And so that was that was cool in in a couple of ways. One that was uh, just to just work with this guy who I knew and respected and. He's also a, kind of a, a workhorse in the writing world, and you kind of know that he will he will work hard on the book, and um, you know deliver. But also because it turned out uh, something that I hadn't known about him was that he co-authored a Dungeons and Dragons novel with this uh, with another writer uh, named Matthew Simmons, and so this this wild like Dungeons and Dragons novel has just been out there under the name Matthew Beard. It's called The Last Garrison, and so to to kind of get to see him like explore that like D&D world through nonfiction is pretty fun for me. And then Dan DeLisi came together more recently. I know him from Los Angeles and he kind of told me just basically a really compelling story about how he got into World of Warcraft and where, you know, kind of where that obsession came from and has like a good story about sneaking out of his parents' house when he was in high school to like meet up with his clan for the first time in person. And they just like took over a computer lab for the weekend and just played wow the entire time. And so, so he kind of like planted the seed with that story. And then he kind of dropped the bomb that he would be able to talk to some people who have worked on world of Warcraft and yeah, basically just that he had some access and who exactly that'll be is still kind of, coming together but it's you know that's that's a pretty exciting thing to i think to be able to like get to hear from some of these people some of whom i don't think have you know talked a whole lot uh publicly about their involvement in wow and so so that's been huge for me and then i guess i already talked about derek but for me i've I've secretly been working on this so i'm one of the authors in season two also and i've secretly been working on this uh book about bible adventures and the uh the company wisdom tree that made it for the last year or so and kind of being the editor of the press, like the really like nice thing that I got to do was kind of work on it at first, like kind of casually, or at least to tell myself it was casual and like, well, if it doesn't work, I can just quietly disappear it. And no one knows that I was working on it anyway. But as I continued to just explore this story more and actually uh, interview the people who are part of this very strange company, I got really into it. And, and I, I was like, oh, well, there's, there's so much to talk about. There's clearly a book here. And so that's been this like really nice, mostly for a while, just like kind of secret thing that I've been able to work on on the side, like in between drafts of working on other people's books, you know, like running 
boss fight's been really consuming, so it's been this really welcome break to take a little time to like hop back into my own document and work on the Bible Adventures books, which is, you know, definitely like that's going to be, that's one of our odd, more oddball selections in terms of games. And if, if you haven't heard much about it, Bible Ventures was, it's, it's from 1990. And the, there was this company called Color Dreams who was making games for the NES, but they were unlicensed games, uh, which wasn't necessarily illegal, but it did mean they didn't have the approval of Nintendo and that they couldn't get shelf space in regular stores because they got muscled out of it. So they had a really hard time making money for these games that they were making, which were of varying quality. Some of them were all right to pretty good. Others were not good. But but none of them were succeeding on the level that they wanted them to. And so when they kind of had this epiphany of what if we started making games that appealed to Christians, it was this very market-based decision. And they so they changed the name to Wisdom Tree. They started working on their first game, which was Bible Adventures, which is these three Old Testament stories about Bible characters going around and doing stuff in a very like Super Mario Brothers 2 looking world where you pick things up and throw them. And then the games kind of only got weirder from there. So it's, <laughs> yeah, to me, it's a really exciting like game history because like nothing like that could exist in the same way now. You know, that's a product of an era where Nintendo had all the cards and there's this one little company that challenged them and for a while got away with it and made a lot of money before the, the, the bottom fell out on that. The best games don't necessarily make for the best stories. Right, yeah. And, and I was, you know, kind of exploring that and realizing that when I really started thinking about, like, what might I write? Like, if I was to write a book for my own series, like, what, what would it be about? And I just started thinking about, like, most of my favorite games, at least on the surface, I don't have a whole lot to say about, you know? I, you know, I love Mario 64. I love going around the castle and playing it. And, you know, I, I, love, I love what everybody else loves about it. But, like, I don't have a fresh take on it. You know, I don't, have, I don't have a lot to say about it other than that it feels good to play it. And so... I think that's like that winds up being another like thing that you see over and over again with these books is like most of us only have a few games that we could probably write a good book about because I mean a single game is is it, that's that's yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's hard to write a full book about a single game. Well, it's also um, you're, it's like all these authors are sort of stepping into new territory for that length yeah. to expand on that criticism. Uh, how aware are you personally of like the I guess you could say the forebearers into book length criticism? Like how much it isn't a long history. <laughs> hmm. Are you you mean games criticism or do you mean just kind of Yeah, like video book? games criticism. Yeah, I uh I've read a a bunch of it, uh, but I probably I'm not a games historian the way some people are. I think like one of the first things that I read uh, when I was researching the idea was I mean one of the first ones that I read was Tom Bissell's book Extra Lives, and uh, that was really exciting to me because of just how comfortable he is sort of expanding the realm of like what you're allowed to talk about when you talk about video games. So you know he would just without batting an eye compare a game to a novel, you know, to a movie. And, you know, I think some of the things that you see in early games criticism is that, like, games are an island unto themselves, right? Like, you talk about games by comparing them to other games. You know, in the really early magazine days, you rate them based on a, you know, rigid numerical system, gameplay, fun factor, <laughs> et cetera. And, you know, then you call it a day. But, but to, to, to see what he was doing with the book and to take a really 
engaged critical approach that clearly was like indebted to the way people write about other art forms, such as music and books and movies. Um, like that was really exciting to me. So that was one of the, the early ones. I, I, what, what are some of the ones you're thinking of? Well, like the, I guess the first one that we, uh, Brandon was able to find an even earlier example, but Brandon's uh, book Killing His yeah, Mom was Back the Line. Yeah. That's the earliest example most of us can actually find on about a, oh, about a, about about a, a single, single game. game. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, that, that was included in that first story bundle as well, which is, I think, probably where a lot of people found out about that book. So that's a really interesting take, too, right? And that's one that we haven't really done so far, which is that really moment by moment, really story based approach of looking I mean yeah I don't know how you'd say it exactly but like looking at a game a written let's play yeah a written let's play a written let's play that allows itself to like wonder about the intentions of the creators and to kind of like you know read into metaphor and that kind of thing yeah so that that was a really interesting take as well and in fact Brandon wrote a thing kind of looking back on his book while having just read Darius Kazemi's Jagged Alliance 2 for our series. And did you see that? Uh, yeah, in fact, I interviewed Brendan's in the broadcast before this one. Oh, cool. Yeah, but it was before he wrote that post. Huh. So it's actually, it's actually kind of interesting because he notes in the post that Kazemi wrote this really long almost condemning critique <laughs> of his of Brendan's own style of doing it and they had a great conversation in the comments yeah. about the methodology and Brendan's own take is that Jagged Alliance 2 is his response to how Brendan should have done his well, own game and actually I mean Darius says as much at the beginning of the book like yeah. he brings up Brendan's book and I mean and I, I had read I think I read his post about about Brendan's book when I was just kind of reading some of Darius's stuff and it was it was pretty bold. I think both of them honestly like, came away from that exchange looking pretty good because they had this very pointed difference of opinion on how this kind of writing should be done, but nobody lost their shit and every you know, they're they're basically gentlemen and you know, now that like and so Darius like after writing his own book comes away with new respect for Brendan and you know, Brendan like admires Darius's book as well. So I was even further interesting is in the interview, Brendan does say that if he were to do it now, he probably well, he actually has like talking access to the developers, so he would actually include a lot of the sort of things that Darius was talking about and getting the creators' Hmm. own viewpoints into it. He would include that in his own book, but at the same time, he says after reading Darius's book, he thinks I have a feeling that a little more on the how the game actually plays from the player perspective could have benefited Darius's own book. Right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's like one of the things that he kind of chose not to do in this one. And and basically, I mean, I, what, what that kind of conversation just reinforces to me is, yes, there, there are many like very valid ways to write about a game or, you know, write about any subject, but in this case, games. So, you know, it's all on the table. I mean, but... That's interesting, you know, like Brennan raises that, that question about access, and I certainly think about, like, you know, access to developers or, you know, people, re- you know, relevant sources more now than I maybe did at the outset of the project, uh, if, if only because I can kind of, you know, I can kind of sympathize with people who just want, you know, if there's going to be a book about a video game, they want some kind of value-added new content, you know, 
like I think kind of like one of the most damning things you could say is like, well, it sure looks like they just looked a bunch of stuff up on Wikipedia and then plopped it down into their book. And I don't think you could really like say that about any of our books. But have you been able to like has like uh, the I guess the prestige of having like this publishing platform able to leverage help from the developers in getting those stories? I, I think that it's definitely helps to have some more visibility now and to be a publisher that's not just planning to publish books but actually does publish books and has, has published has, books. Yeah, you have has a real website and. Like these because some, I know, like, with Derek Yu, it's obvious, yes, of course we can get the developer's opinions yeah, on this book. Yeah, exactly. But, like, I'm guessing, uh, what was his name? Uh, Mike Bell has... Matt Bell. Seems to have, Matt Bell has some, seems to have some access to the Dungeons & Dragons world, so he could possibly get... Well, you know, I mean, I don't think that he's been... So I don't think that so far he's been... had luck getting to talk to Bioware themselves, but he, yeah, but he, at least he does have, have that, that familiarity and that, yeah, that kind of Dungeons and Dragons or inside whatever. angle. <laughs> or even Daniel Lisi? Lisi, yeah. Who, who said that he actually can get to people who worked on World of Warcraft. Right. So I think it's like, on one hand, it's like, it's really natural to be excited by that stuff. I don't want to get too caught up with access because, you know, then you, you know, there's plenty of ways that you can write about a game that don't involve that at all, like we were just talking about. So, but it is something to think about. And when I was working on my own my own book, I mean, that was kind of one of the things that I was thinking about going into. It was like, wow, it sure would be nice to work on a game made by English speaking people because then I can really get in there and like learn the story and include that and just kind of have that at least as a possibility. Um, and that's it wound up being a big part of the book. To go back a little to, uh, like, the Brendan Darius yeah. little collaborative spat <laughs> that got their, made them better, for, both of them better for it, you can see a sort of a direct conversation happening between those two. But what about, like, the larger critical discourse that these books have garnered or created or contributed to? Yeah, like, what have – are you kind of asking, like, what have, what have these books got well, people like, talking about or – well, that, that's in part of it because we see that that's like a very direct and very like it's like the first major connection you can see about like a critical discourse actually happening on how criticism works yeah. using actual physical examples of attempts made. And you see a lot of praise for your work. Congratulations on that Thanks. For, for, for a season. But it, it doesn't quite not all of them have that same like I guess, impact into the discourse. Oh, or am I just missing like it? like not all the books like hit the same amount in terms of like how much they get or obvious about that or I guess obviousness it could be more subtle in just simply getting people to think without actually speaking up yeah that's interesting I mean I think it's natural that the conversation changes depending on one like what's actually in the book and two who the person is writing and kind of what their like platform is from the rest of their career and, and that kind of thing. So like for Michael Kimball's book, like the, the conversation surrounding it winds up being about like game playing as escape, like particularly like game playing as escape from your, like if you've got a sad life, if you've got an abusive childhood as Michael did, then like <laughs> how good it can be to have a Galaga. And maybe it doesn't even depend what, 
you know, maybe it doesn't matter so much what your Galaga is, but to like have that thing and to that, that you can achieve mastery at, and when you're in the world of the thing, you are lost and you feel your problems recede and that kind of thing. And so that's like the kind of thing that I've noticed from that. But that's you know, but, but that I think has a little less impact on the game world and it just more has impact on people's emotional connection with a compelling story, almost like what a good memoir would do. Whereas, you know, yeah, I think like for Darius's book, you see people kind of like, you know, you see the con- the conversation turning more toward how has the game development industry changed and why can there not, you know, and, and why does it not support games that are quite as idiosyncratic or that can have quite as long of a gestation period and have so many um, like of these kind of hidden or uh, things that you might never experience that could happen in the game. And with such like a deep attention to AI, the Jagger Lines 2 had, you know, like what does it mean that the climate right now is not well as well suited to that style of game making as it once was? <laughs> So I don't know, but, but, but yeah, so I guess like, uh, I guess like my, my short answer is, yeah, I don't know. People talk about whatever, what they want, but, but I also think that, and I, what I hope is that uh, like the conversation that these books create is ongoing and doesn't really kind of flare out in the, you know, first couple of months after the book comes out. But like, as the series grows, it kind of draws people back into the earlier titles and that they can kind of like discover those and, you know, kind of get some thinking about these things and have that attention be renewed as time goes on. And, you know, we've got plans to eventually get distribution into bookstores, which would kind of increase the chances that somebody who is not just paying attention to the game world on the internet, you know, increase the chance that they might just kind of casually come across one of these books and just say like, well, I love Chrono Trigger. So what does this, what does this guy have to say about it? What about the digital storefronts like Amazon and Barnes and Noble? Yeah, we're on the Kindle store. So that's so far that's the only one that we've worked from since that's kind of the since that remains, you know, the biggest share of where people get ebooks from. And then we also sell the ebooks from our own store. And when we do, we just do it. We sell like uh, uh, all of the files at once, like EPUB, Moby and PDF. I feel like I know the answer to this already, but was Boss Fight Books like supposed to be focused on older games, or was that just happenstance that only? Um, well, I think you know. I actually like, think it was like a little bit of both. I think during that first season, I was more interested in starting with older games, and I honestly I can't totally remember why. I think the the thing that I will still say is I really don't want to like publish a book about a game that's still in its like early sales cycle. Because I don't want us to get pulled into like the whirlwind of sales and like have a weird like symbiotic relationship with the game's popularity that like I don't know that compromises us in any way. So it to me, and it's also I mean, it just in terms of like where good criticism often comes from, it's easier to write about something like after the smoke is cleared. But that said, I mean, I think you know, I mean, the smoke has, I mean, you know, now now that we're doing Spelunky, which is not an old game at all and is still, I mean, it, you know, just came out on PS4 for the first time. Yeah. Re-released on the new platforms. Yeah. It was interesting to look at your uh, little uh, poll go on the ki- on the season two Kickstarter and it was the newest game of the lot that got all the votes. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've, I thought about this particularly like 
one of uh, there's this one chapter in my book where I just am thinking about like nostalgia and and I noted that in that first Kickstarter, all of the games that made it to the top four. Well, there were a couple of like kind of weirdly combined like franchises, but basically all the top four games were Super Nintendo games. And this time, you know, a little over a year later, that's split. It was split between Super Nintendo games and the very next iteration of game generation, which is PlayStation. So you've kind of, I, I think, my theory is we've got this kind of cultural sweet spot, you know, and like that what we are m- most nostalgic for kind of is is that moving target and you know what we will consider like a retro game is obviously going to like change as time moves forward and so like the games that people like become hungry to hear about are going to change over time too so like whereas you know maybe like chrono trigger is an easy win a year ago now you know shadow of the colossus you know a game that came out oh sorry sorry 2005 oh 2005 yeah well yeah. that's sort of that's sort of Blows my nine years a ago bit. but <laughs> why well, oh yeah and, and shadow of the classes was was ps2 so eco yeah. eco was playstation one stars of the classes was PS2. no that was ps2 as well oh it was oh okay for yeah 2001 like the first full year of ps2 interesting okay but yeah anyway so, <laughs> so I, don't, I don't know what that means but i think it's interesting that you know you know, variety. we kind of, yeah, it could be a stretch for variety. I mean, and uh, yeah, the fact is like, we, we haven't done a book on anything like Shadow of the Colossus. Not, not that there are many games like Shadow of the Colossus, but or even just a 3d action adventure game. I don't, uh, that Metal Gear Solid or it. Yeah, that's right. Okay. I got to ask, I'm looking through all these books as we're talking about this. And I just noticed on the Baldur's Gate two that there's a hamster. Yeah. Like before, you just see the figure, and it isn't until you until like a double look. Oh, there's a hand! Oh my god, that's brilliant! <laughs> Do you know his process for coming up with these covers? Because I love the stark minimalist simplicity of just all white and a single object. So, oh yeah, so just uh, about about the, uh, yeah, the process. Where the covers come from. Ken's big idea, kind of going into the series, was he wanted to steal this concept from there are these books, these several books that were all about uh, Foucault. And they all used like a real world object in a kind of a minimalist way. And so he was really attracted to that idea and to like applying to toward video games was 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 like pretty exciting to both of us. I think it kind of like naturally clears out. I don't know, like it's kind of some of the, like the visual style of video games can be very like image dense, you know, like kind of the, like chip tunes, like jump, bop, 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 and then <laughs> and then like, you know, just like rich, like, you know, big colors and that kind of thing. And so to kind of clear out clutter and just focus on this one evocative image felt like a really natural thing to set the tone for the series. And in fact, like it's kind of become like our minimal style in a way that I continue to really appreciate. So I'm glad that he brought that to the table. So some of them are really obvious, like the earth brown bat, right. the Chrono Trigger hedgehog. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm really proud of that hedgehog. Because really, <laughs> not just any hedgehog would have made that work, you know. To, it needed to be the like evil-looking hedgehog, to be an evil-looking lavos-like hedgehog, and it so is. So you know, yeah. So for Baldur's Gate two, but basically, like in each each time, we kind of will just get an email chain going between me and the author and Ken, 
And, you know, me and the author will kind of throw out ideas and we'll kind of have a back and forth about like just what are some of the really evocative standout images from a game that really kind of get at like the heart of what the game is. And so we just kind of do that each time. But the one that makes me think that the, that the uh, style of this is really brilliant is the Spelunky cover. Spelunky is just a game filled hundreds and hundreds of different images. Yeah. And to choose the eggplant, it somehow, as soon as you see it, you realize, yeah, that's the correct image. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think, like, w- what that one does for me is, you know, really gets at the, it, yeah, just like at, at the secrets of Spelunky, right? And, like, both, like, the you know the fact that like the eggplant is an object that wasn't even discovered for a while and then you know people didn't know how to use it and then it was like only through getting into the code uh did people like learn what it did and then it was only through like teamwork and you know this like online community did people figure out how it might be possible to do a solo eggplant run and then like watching you know i watched that entire video of how bananasaurus rex did it and you know, the, the Polygon article that breaks the whole thing down. And so, like, <laughs> like it's really – and that that thing seems to be at the heart of, like, Splunky fandom and obsession for a lot of us. So, but the, the funny story about that is, like, going into it, like, I had – I had you know, I, I talked to Derek about it a little bit, I think on the phone. And, my, you know, my one that I was pushing for, just because I think it would be adorable, would just be – a bit like a, a big eyed pug, you know, like an adorable pug, you know, because that's the damsel that I always use when I play, and, uh, and probably like most people do, and it's just like so perfect, so perfect, like as an image that would look good as a book cover, but like for Ken, he was like, no, it's it's got to be the eggplant, and he really pushed for it. I mean, I think it's like it's the smarter choice, you know, it's like it's the fans' choice, so that is pretty perfect. Mm-hmm. Oh, but uh, in, you, you mentioned Matt's before. Have you played Ball? Have you played Baldur's Gate too? Um, Way too much. Okay, so yeah, of yeah, both of them. Yeah, the giant miniature space hamster. You have an armored guy with a mace and a huge backpack, and he says, "Yeah, that could work for pretty much any RPG." But then I didn't even notice the <laughs> hamster. I, I noticed it during our interview. Oh my god, there's a hamster on the cover. That's that, <laughs> like, that, like Baldur's Gate. Like as we've been talking, you notice the hamster. That's great. Yes, yeah. I love that. Well, it'll be over by the time this goes up, but you are at the moment taking pitches and reading, supposedly, assumedly reading through pitches for Shadow of the Colossus. Right. Yeah, I believe I said January 5th was the cutout, cutoff on that. Yeah. yeah. Th- this will be up like February. Sure, sure. So how's that process working? Well, so far it's just really early on. So, I mean, we've gotten a couple of uh, very early pitches, but so, you know, I'm going to read each one really closely. Ryan Plummer, who's our intern, who does uh, he does a lot of copy editing, and uh, and he helped helped me by like also giving another pair of eyes to every submission that we got this summer during the open reading period. I think and I hope that he will uh, also get to take a look. Maybe Mike Williams will also get to uh, to read some of them too, and so we can kind of chat about them some. But basically, I mean, I'll just be reading them really closely and seeing what excites me the most. And I think I'll also probably need to like jump back into the game some and kind of re-familiarize myself with it. Um, Cause I've got it, but I haven't taken out the PS2 in a while. It's not a game where I think it's really obvious what you would do with it. Like there's not a lot of stuff that floods to mind. Like, well, you've got to explore. I mean, 
there's the way that it approaches storytelling, you know, without words and just just with the visuals and like without setting it up with any mythology and just letting you go out and kill and then like reflect on why you might be doing this and that kind of thing. That's fascinating. And then the enormity of the beasts and the puzzle of how you kill them is really interesting. So, I mean, there's obviously so much to talk about, but I don't know how I'd do it. So I'm basically, I'm just um, at the mercy. Especially for a sustained of over a hundred yeah, pages. Yeah, that's right. Cause like you can only talk about atmosphere and general broad concepts for so long before you actually have to get into nitty gritty specifics. Right. And that's where, you know, like an individual writer's take can really kind of win the day in terms of like can, what they can bring to it and like what kind of parallels can they draw into culture and into the world. I mean, like I can say that one of the things that really made me sure that uh, I wanted to work with Mike Williams instead of like some of the other like very competent authors who were pitching a Chrono Trigger book was that he wrote me this excerpt that it was all about like the day of Lavos and then also kind of contrasting that with Japan's nuclear history and like, and it, it's one of those things where, weirdly, I think people have like accused him of reaching, but he's not. I mean, in, if you look at the game Chrono Trigger from the perspective of, you know, J- Japan's history, I mean, it's like Lavos is nuclear threat, you know. And then it's not just Lavos; it's pretty much every it's major Godzilla final job. Yeah, it's every major big monsters in all JRPGs and movies and and books and anime. It's, it's yeah. part of their culture. Yeah. It made a stamp on their cultural identity. Yeah, they're like, there comes a time in the story where like fire is going to rain down from heaven. And so to just like the way he explored that and like in, you know, what he had got to bring to the table is that he lived in Fukushima for a couple years. And so like their most recent nuclear devastation was is has happened in the town where he used to live so like bringing that personal element to it was for me really moving and 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 beautiful i i guess i i say that in part just to give an example of how i like to be surprised because i never would have sought that out even as someone who played a ton of chrono trigger and in fact played through it again last year as i was editing the book just because i kind of felt like it i didn't go like looking for that particular take it just kind of found me I know you're like probably neck deep in the work for season two, but you got to keep the eye out for the future. So, what are you like hoping for boss fight books for like season three and four, or what are you looking for specifically? Because I know you do, you specifically say on the site no repeats. You can have any game except the one except the ten we've just done, right. the twelve we've just done. Right, right. You know, and I mean, we might eventually be able to do like repeats in terms of like franchises, particularly if there's franchises that involve a lot of games um, and that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I think a lot of a lot of what I want to continue to push toward is variety. I would like to get to focus on some games um, and genres that we have not done books about yet and see what that brings to the table. Also, you know, work with, you know, authors who are coming from perspective that we haven't gotten to represent as much yet. You know, I'm I'm currently, I you know I I think going into it, I thought that I would have contracted more women writers so far. So that's like that's certainly certainly something that I'm kind of keeping 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 an eye out for moving forward. If if only because you know, just like anything, I really want these books to 
like kind of offer perspectives that come from places other than, you know, where we might be useful, where we might be used to and, you know, be able to kind of hear from people who, you know, particularly like some of the things that have been going on in the gaming world in the last few months, like hear from people who have been marginalized and who are, who, who do not always get a safe space to speak the way uh, straight white dudes like myself do. So, yeah, I, I guess my main answer again is variety and just constantly like trying to be like kind of aware of what else we might get to do and then just kind of quality and like keeping keeping an eye open for that that kind of like I know it when I see it perfect combo of like the writer and the game coming together. Um, and uh, I'd ask like is there I'd ask if there was any specific styles that you that you haven't done that you'd like to do a book on but then again if you knew what it was <laughs> you probably had already have done it. Right. Well, you know, and I guess I should say too like if if we were a bigger company, if it was more than just me doing most of the stuff, then I'd be able to move faster and put out more books because more than six a I, year. Because I really, you know, I haven't had a problem getting great ideas from people and getting really strong pitches, which makes it kind of gut wrenching to say no because it's not like no because <laughs> it's not no because you didn't just pitch me a book that I really want to read. It's just no because like I'm I'm all full right now. Sorry. There's only six slots because I only have so many hours Yeah, yeah. in a given year. And because I have that taste for involvement and, you know, I kind of have that obsessive desire for quality control. No, that's that's great. Especially since that this is a new venture, like quality control is paramount to make sure it continues going forward. Right. I mean, and even then, obviously, like some things get by us. And we catch some shit for it. There's this one error in Super Mario Brothers 2 where, like, he either says A button and means B button or says B button and means A button. And a couple people on Twitter are not cool with that. I believe believe one line was, there is no excuse. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, that's that's sort of true. (laughs) It's just, but it's a big book and my eyes get bleary and I read it so many times. You can correct it in the digital. Well, versions. that's true. That's true, and and will uh, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> so, when you send these off to the publishers, do you just get like one round of publishing, or do you like have it on like a consistent basis based on the orders that you get for the books? I have been. I do it a couple different ways. One thing that like, Kickstarter has been useful for is sort of knowing which books, at least kind of early on, have gotten all you know the most excitement and so that's kind of helped me project how many to print um in the early going for season one the big the most interest was in earthbound mostly just because of that fan community is so strong that that kind of the starman.net uh community uh is enormous and so there's just so many people who would love to just kind of consume as much uh earthbound as possible and and who you know were intrigued by ken's take on it in that excerpt and then this time around, I think definitely Spelunky is the early leader in terms of particularly like that's the one that got some coverage. You know, that's the one that Rock Paper Shotgun did an article about and just kind of point to like, hey, there's there's going to be a book about Spelunky by Derek Yu. And so I think. Yeah, I've heard mostly the excitement because it is by the creator. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't fault anyone for that. I mean, I think. If, if I was kind of just coming at it as a reader, I mean, that's the one that I would init- initially just really latch on to, too, because I've never read a book like that. And, you know, and I and I still haven't. 
because I because that's one I haven't seen a draft of yet. But I'm so curious about you know kind of what he what he's going to be doing with that. So anyway, but you asked about printing. So there's that part, and so all the domestic orders come from me, and so I've got I've got the books, and I ship them out either from my home or just head over to the post office and and just do it. And then all the international orders, I've got the digital files of the books at the printer's database. And so whenever somebody overseas orders one, I will have one book printed and sent sent to them. And that's actually like, that that works out better for everyone. But you're careful not to have like boxes of extras just hanging about. I mean, I've got, you mean like, have like a huge surplus? Yeah. Yeah, you know, because I can't. Because we're still pretty early in, in the early going here, so I don't want to make any of those big, big choices that'll accidentally, you know, sink the company if <laughs> if, if if the book doesn't sell. And you know, and I and I think it, it kind of lets me be a little bit riskier and allows me to kind of follow my bliss in terms of which books I want to work with. I mean, not that I can even not that I can even really guess like which ones are going to be the ones sounds like you have a modular publishing system in, in place so that you're able to be much more nimble. Yeah. And in, in how much you have to do. Not, like, if this was like a decade ago, I can imagine you have to order this specific number and pray that it doesn't bankrupt you. Yeah. I, I just wouldn't have the same resources 10 years ago. Like, it's it's a pretty cool time to be in indie publishing, I think. I mean, it's still hard to make a living at it, and I'm definitely, you know, nowhere near what I, where I would uh, like to be, you know, for myself, considering how much time it takes. But, but the fact that it is able to exist at all, and then that I get to get to make this thing that, you know, I dreamed up a year and a half ago, and that now this series exists and is a continuous thing. And like, we kind of were just watching these books actually exist is, uh, is, you know, hugely exciting to me, and I'm I'm pretty grateful. I mean, I'm especially grateful to people who have put their trust in the press before we even proved ourselves. <laughs> I, I, I mean, as as everyone knows, like Kickstarter is risky, and you don't always get the thing that you said that you were going to, or the the thing that they said that that they were going to give you. Often, because you know, I don't know, things things don't go the way somebody planned. You know, yeah, just the fact that a lot of people showed up early on and made it possible to do this is is something I continue to feel grateful for, and that, that kind of just makes me want to be sure to do a good job because they because I I owe it to them because I said I would. I think what's particularly I guess special isn't quite the word, but I don't have the other one. Uh, the special about it is that you actually have the physical book, mm. like. Yeah, most instead of, of just time, doing it's e-books. e-books or a limited run of a physical book with mostly e-books. Hmm. Yeah. You're giving someone something tangible to hold right. it in their hand. And I get I feel like that makes it more real. Oh yeah, definitely to me. Like here is a real physical book you can hold in your hand, take on the train and flip through the pages of. Well, yeah. And that that makes it some like more I guess serious. Yeah. Just in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I've, I mean, I've, I've grown up with healthy respect of the book as an object, and I mean, I think like the power of the book is that it honors whatever it's about, and so to see it as you know a real 
paperback uh, on the shelf beside all the others, particularly like once I had all of one through six, you know, I was kind of like waiting for that day when I could, you know, take that picture <laughs> of all of them together like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly means a lot to me. I mean, and then the flip side of it is, I mean, we sell more ebooks than we do print books, you know, so like we have the physical thing for whoever really values that. And if you don't, or, or, you know, you just like want one of the paperbacks and the rest, you just want to get on ebook, like, got you covered. And, you know, and, and the part of me that, that is concerned about ecology and that kind of thing is like pretty excited that we're able to like get it all out digitally. Like if, you know, it's funny, like I, (laughs) like I, you know, I, I care about that. And also, like, I don't really love reading ebooks. Like, if I can read a print book instead, like, I, I really will because, to me, it's it's a better reading experience. I feel like I forgot to ask this earlier, and I'm going to probably edit it uh, back yeah. to the early, yeah. earlier part of the conversation. But about the covers, I also like the little design you have of what system this game was for yeah. as a representation. Yeah, that, that, that feels right to me, too. And that was... I think I should credit there was this one graphic designer who they they weren't designing book covers for books about games. They were just designing, I believe they were designing these like graphics of like, what if this game like was a book instead of a game? Like basically like making game covers that look like Penguin Classics. Yeah. Did you ever see something like that? Yeah, they got they got featured a while back. Yeah, they were cool looking, and I think that those had controllers, which was kind of another good like sticky concept that you can really kind of see those. And you know, so I I, I want to say that like when I saw that, it, it, that might have been what gave me the idea to try to do something like that that kind of like gives you that coat another like nice little like series cohesive thing. It also like, codes you in, like, where this is from. Like, yeah. Like, Super Mario Brothers 2, you have the, the NES, then you got the Super NES. Yeah, exactly. Which is, which is, which is a similar but completely different image. Most of them are piece, are the same PC, I notice, <laughs> regardless of what era the game is. Well, we've talked about that, and I, 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 could, I could see the argument for either one, but to me, to, like, have the same PC, like that's kind of nice, you know, to like know that that PC will be there for each of the PC games, even though it obviously like chronologically doesn't apply. If you do a newer PC game, you definitely won't be playing it on a machine that looks like that. Um, <laughs> and, but what's really great was the Galica one. Cause you, you actually get like the you arcade actually machine. Have the, the image of the stand up arcade machine. Yeah. Like, yeah, I like that too. I can't wait till you like, till you have to, until you end up doing games on, on like the very specialist system. Here's an yeah. Atari. Here's well, a, yeah. Um, here's the here's the Wii. <laughs> right. And I I think I want to do a uh, GameCube game sometime. Not because there's a game that I'm particularly <laughs> that needs to be written about, but because like getting that beautiful purple on one of those spines, I think would would look great. <laughs> You know, just, yeah, <laughs> and, and and you know, and and an Xbox lime green at some point. I was I was asking Derek, like, so what do you think? Like, is this mostly a PC game? I mean, I play it on the Xbox. If it was Xbox, we could do green. He's like, well, most people play it on PC. So, and and so like, I guess you go with the hit, the game's origins as well. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, the original Spelunky was nothing but PC. So, it's that's definitely the right choice. 
But again, I was thinking like, ooh, that green spine. So that's oh, so that's what the colors on the side mean. Yeah, some of them make more sense than others, but we try to have some kind of logic to it. I think like the yellow of Galaga, we just kind of chose because there is no color of a arcade machine. But you know, so like Super Nintendo is like the orange of the Super Nintendo logo. NES, we chose like the the gray of an actual gray box. of an actual NES. Yeah. And the black for PC. Yeah, and then black for PC, which is another one that, you know, you kind of can't, you can't really, you know, I mean, all PCs are different, so. Blue. Blue, yeah. Blue screen of death. Oh, blue screen of death would have been an appealing one. Maybe not, because you want the game to actually run. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for your time, Gabe. Yeah, yeah, thank you. 